The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're taking the time now to land after whatever kind of day it's been. No matter how disconnected, distracted, caught up, There's actually nothing in the way now of the heart connecting, landing, simply feeling what's here to feel. There's nothing actually in the way of showing up to our life. And the most important thing is not to be surprised by how difficult it is to both connect and then especially to sustain this wise and kind presence. And just experiment this willingness to connect with the experience of the body sitting, actually feeling now the sensations of the body sitting. And then notice the challenge to sustain this simple interest, this presence, this connection with the body sitting. Really the effort of not forgetting. Can this be enough just to be continuously receptive, present to the physicality of the body sitting, the breathing body, And of course, as soon as we're, as soon as the attention, I should say, is willing to connect and open, sustain with the physicality of the body, then necessarily we'll begin to feel what's there in the heart, all the unattended wounds and feelings, qualities of the heart sadness or joy, excitement or depression. Once we come, once we value the present moment, we notice the totality like nothing is left out then. Being open to the present moment is an all or nothing proposition. Because we're not fixating on one particular object of experience or opening and allowing the conditions of the body to be, allowing the conditions of the heart and the conditions of the thinking mind to be what they are. Learning that we don't have to be confused by what's coming and going, what's being felt or being seen 
being noticed. So with a lot of integrity, explore right now this possibility of sustaining present moment awareness. It's this again, this effort of not forgetting. Not forgetting what's being felt and being known. And to sustain present moment awareness means that this awareness is being refreshed moment by moment or the valuing of the present moment is being refreshed moment by moment. And feel free to use the relatively concrete experience, for example, the sensations of the body sitting or the sensations of the body breathing in and breathing out with this simple experience of hearing sound. These can be very useful training experiences, training objects, meditation objects, where we train the mind to connect and sustain and be willing to begin again and again and again and again. The habit, the deep habit often is to get lost in thought. Even the thought that I'm being mindful can be a distraction. Or the doubt, am I doing it right? So whenever you notice, whenever you can notice, notice that thinking is just thinking being known. Mental activity is being known. And the particular content of the thought is not so important but that wisdom recognizes thinking is happening. It's just that mental activity being felt, being known. So not confused or spellbound by the thoughts that are being thought. And then return to the more simple anchor of feeling the body sitting, feeling the breath naturally moving right here in the body the physicality of breathing in, the physicality of breathing out. And in particular, noticing what happens when this present moment awareness can be sustained for moments at a time. It's a kind of mental, psychological, emotional healing that happens and present moment awareness is sustained. So notice that.
let this whole body awareness be the default. So just come back to that sense of the whole body sitting, the breathing body. And with this willingness to be close and recognize the physicality of the sitting and breathing body, Being intimate with the body will support a being intimate with the entirety of the present moment, the sensitivity of the heart, the activity of the mind.
See if you can be really curious in a non-judging way. Really curious about what gets in the way of the continuity of present moment awareness. Allow it to become a real interesting challenge, this connecting and sustaining of present moment awareness, the not forgetting that it's like this now. It's amazingly challenging to sustain present moment awareness just to allow the sensations of the body to come and go, to allow the breath to come and go, feelings in the heart, thoughts in the mind to come and go. And present moment awareness simply recognizes it's like this, this is being known now. But it's neither for nor against any particular experience that's coming and going. Simply recognizes the way that it is, moment by moment.
So no matter how sleepy the mind might be or agitated or peaceful, in a sense, stepping back and recognizing that this experience of the body and the mind is being known right now, right here and now, feeling like this, Just sensing if this way of relating, this way of being aware is wholesome or unwholesome in the sense of planting seeds for more stress, that would be unwholesome, supporting more ease, that would be wholesome, a way of relating that leads to peacefulness. Just for another few minutes, see if you can discover, find a way to be both alert and relaxed right in the middle. And again, use the physicality of the sitting body, the breathing body, as a gateway back to the present moment. Both intimate and allowing everything to be the way that it is. Take a little time, adjust your body. Welcome, everyone. I've been looking at the Buddhist teachings on path, and normally in the Buddhist tradition it's talked about as the Eightfold Path, but the quick and easy way to remember the path is in terms of three components, 
Right? Where, where might a human being bring present moment awareness? Well, the more gross aspect of our life is this area of relationship, how we relate to others, how do we relate to communities. This we call sila, uh, living with integrity. And uh, the basic teaching is valuing non-harming around our speech, around our actions, and even how we earn a living. So that's, you could say, one arena of awareness. Another is looking at the mind itself and the activity of the mind and realizing that I do want to be responsible for the spine. In the same way we'd be responsible for our garden or for our relationships, we can take responsibility. It's a little, obviously, more subtle, but it matters what particular qualities are there in the mind. Are they helpful qualities? What sort of qualities am I watering, developing? What sort of qualities am I not taking care of? and taking responsibility. So we bring awareness to the qualities of the mind and heart. That's sort of the middle part of the practice. So we have the dense or the gross, the obvious, our relationships in the outer world. We have the more gross aspect of the mind, like the basic personality patterns and tendencies that have been activated and are playing themselves out right here. And then the more subtle part of the mind we call our understanding, our, our view. Even, you know, it doesn't quite fit in how the Buddha talks, but even our beliefs, our underlying beliefs would sort of be in this more subtle way, like how we frame our experience. Presumptions that are so set in the mind, we don't even realize they're presumptions. They just show up and they're in a way the default way that the mind looks at the world or understands the world. And the the big thing here, of course, in terms of our understanding is we tend to frame things in terms of a separate me here and there's everything else out there. And that frame happens almost automatically and we tend not to notice that self-centered frame is happening. And that's because it's this underlying understanding or underlying view that just happens. It's a very subtle and pervasive habit of the mind. So that's sort of the wisdom end where we bring awareness to understanding. And this is the mind end or the mind piece. We call this samadhi because we're interested in this coming together of the heart and mind in a beautiful, balanced, clear, kind way. And then this we call sila because we're interested in using awareness so that our relationships really become infused with kindness and integrity. And and really understanding like how suffering works and taking responsibility for how we might be complicit and how suffering happens in our communities. So that's sila. So we're moving through the the different components of the path. We started talking about understanding in a more sort of basic way in January. And then in February, we've been looking at this part of the practice that's about sila, or ethical conduct and relationships. So we're bringing, uh, bringing awareness to our actions, to our speech, 
or how we earn a living or how we make our way, how we survive, find shelter, find food, because all of that is impactful. And there are ways, you know, when we don't bring this awareness and this, you know, awareness really allows for that value of non-harming. It isn't that I care about the well-being of others and the well-being of myself. It's not like I picked that up because my kindergarten teacher told me you should be kind or my parents told me. We actually discover it by paying attention. We discover that I care about this life. Just because when there is that balanced present moment awareness, we discover I actually care about this life. And lo and behold, over time we discover I don't even know most of you, but I also care about your well-being. And if your suffering was obvious to me, it would touch my heart. I'd feel that. And when I hear about it, it matters, the suffering of others, right? Just like if you see a bird hit a plate glass uh, window and it's sitting there on the ground quivering because it's you know, in shock or worse, you know, that makes an impact, right, when we see that. And when we see people being taken advantage of or hear about it, or we ourselves are being taken advantage about taken advantage of, we feel it. So the morality that um, develops for human beings, you know, when we think about a saintly, wise, kind human being, their morality didn't get handed down because someone told them they need to be good. A real saint is good, a, a wise, loving person is good because they're sensitive. They've been bringing awareness to these three areas of life, the gross area, the middling area, and the subtle area of life, right? We're bringing awareness to everything, this mindful awareness. And so now we're talking about bringing awareness to the grosser or dense part of life, like how we are in conversation, how we are with our family, our siblings, parents, if they're still alive, how we are at a work scene, how we are in the wider community, how we are when we're shopping. Right? All those places where we engage the world when we're playing. And uh, what happens when we start to bring awareness to those places? Like when we're shopping for whatever. Are we willing to really feel and see both in terms of a breadth of awareness and a subtlety awareness? Or, you know, every, almost every, probably every single interaction has some kind of power dynamic. Could be related to age, could be related to beauty, you know, sort of cultural standards for beauty and body size, could be related to race, could be related to sex, gender. And these are always playing out. Even me sitting on a platform, you know, in the front of the room with a microphone creates this sort of power thing here. And the question is, now that we're in community here at Common Ground, you know, are we aware that it matters how we're relating right now. So if 
you know, if some kind of power trip is playing out in my mind unseen, right, it matters. And if it's seen, it matters. And it, how it's understood, it matters. And just the same with you. If somebody, you know, is like impressed that he's sitting up on a platform or whatever or think he must be special if he's in the front of the room and being idealistic in that in that way, that, that leaves an impre- uh, impression in our heart. Is that a wholesome impression or a not-so-wholesome impression? Or if you're a rebel and you immediately think anybody in a position of authority is a jerk or whatever, then that leaves an impression too. So these dynamics are happening all, all over the place. You might sense somebody who's attractive in the room. And then whether you interact in an obvious way with that person, there's some kind of dynamic, even if it's just within our own mind. And then what kind of impression does that leave? Like are we objectifying somebody based on superficial information? And then what does that do in our hearts? And what does that send out in the room? What kind of world are we creating in terms of the inner space? And what kind of world are we creating in terms of the wider outer space? And just starting to care about that. And so tonight, you know, we've moved from just generally looking at looking at our actions with awareness to more specifically looking at speech. And the thing is, you know, most of us it would stand out if we were actively taking things that aren't ours or actively aggressing against somebody. You know, we'd notice that impact in our heart. But it's interesting with our words and especially a lot of the internal dialogue, like what, how I might silently in my mind allow my mind to fume and judge and but you know i think well i'm not actually hitting that person you know so it's not bad or something like that it's not leaving any trace but we actually want to check when i say something or i refrain from saying something what's the impression in the heart having done that having thought that and said that what's left over what have i what's been said in motion around me in somebody else's heart or other people's hearts and to start taking responsibility for our words. Because I'm sure if we took the time and, you know, like now you can just reflect words either you've spoken or somebody else spoke, you know, within the last year that still have some weight in your heart. And I bet we could go back, like I bet a lot of us could remember, those of us who are older than 40, you know, in my early 60s, I can go back 50, 55 years. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Remembering 55 years ago words that I spoke that still have some weight in my heart. Like, oh, I said that? You know, even as a seven-year-old. And so, obviously... The words people speak, the words we speak, set stuff in motion. Weight. <laughs> Some of and, and healing too, right? Words can be used for 
obviously for tremendous healing, reconciliation, and words can be used to create division all the time. And the question is, it's like we have this power with our words. Are we going to take responsibility? Because so it seems so much easier just to let it rip, let it play out. We often, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, you know, we like this part of, Bo- of Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, that talks about letting go. Sometimes, oh yeah, letting go, just let it rip. But the, the actual trajectory of practice is, you know, someone who's completely untrained, it's just they're letting it rip, and they keep digging a hole and falling in it, and digging a hole and falling in it, because there's this delusion that it doesn't matter. And we talked about that in January, if you want to listen to those talks. right? The, the initial insight of a spiritual human, a person getting on a spiritual path is, it actually matters how I'm showing up moment by moment. How do I know it matters? Because in every moment, if I value enough to pay attention, I'll feel directly, sense directly, what's left over from how I was relating the previous moment. Like I'll feel the seeds that are getting planted in the mind stream. I'm becoming the person based on the seeds that were planted in previous moments. That's who I am. Like right now, I'm the person right, acting out the seeds that were planted earlier, the tendencies that were dug in earlier. That's who I am right now. That's who we all are right now. So can't do much about that. Those seeds were already planted. They're already expressing themselves right now. The interesting question, the relevant question is, so what seeds am I going to plant right now? And what seeds do, seeds do I not want to plant right now? And that's really on this, uh, this level of um, sila, practicing with integrity, and in, sp- in particular around words and the impact that words have, how we're going to use them. And last week, um, I was in here last Sunday, Doug taught, Doug McGill taught um, from Rochester. I was leading a retreat for Common Ground. But on Wednesday, I gave this talk about, you know, understanding this work of caring about how we're acting, speaking, thinking even, both in terms of the power of refraining, like where we have the impulse to do or say something, but we know enough to refrain because we're not clear. I mean, that alone would really dramatically change our lives and change the whole world. If I had, the only wisdom I had was, when I'm not clear that something's skillful, I have this superpower to pause. Like if that was the only wisdom we had in life, when not clear, pause. Like whether in terms of an action or some words or even thinking, you know, oh, I'm about to obsess about this. I'm not so sure that's helpful. I'm going to hit the pause button. Feel out what's going on until there's some clarity. It may not be perfect clarity. Oh, yeah, I think this is skillful. And then we tentatively go forward, start thinking, speaking, acting, but still with mindful awareness to see like, 
oh, maybe it isn't so skillful. Maybe I wasn't that initial impression. So I'm going to pause again. Right? Feel it in, feel it out. Is this really helpful? Is this, what might this be setting in motion? And it's not so much about thinking it through, although that can help a little bit, that as we're imagining, right, this is the power of human imagination. I can imagine myself saying something to Charlie, (coughs) right? And as I imagine it, I'll feel somewhat what it would feel like to actually say that so I can get a sense. Just like I can imagine there was a robbery about a week and a half ago at the credit union right next door, somebody with a gun. And, uh, you know, I can imagine stealing something. I can visualize it. I can imagine what the person might feel like. I can imagine how nervous I'd be about getting caught. I would notice what that feels like, and it would be very clear to me, I don't want that. And I wouldn't do it, right? So this is the thing. I can imagine saying all kinds of things to my wife, my, my spouse, about, you know, yeah, just things that push my buttons. And I do say some of those things, unfortunately, <laughs> for all of us. But a lot of the times, you know, it's like there's enough wisdom that understands, oh, where that that kind of anger or whatever is coming from, it sees it in that wise and impersonal way. Oh, yeah, that's coming from a particular perspective, like an oh, poor me perspective. No one's ever really been there for me. Have I told you that? <laughs> I mean, how many of us can, that's like a little spell that can be cast in our mind. And for moments, it really seems true. Nobody actually has been there for me. I've had to do it all on my own, right? Do you feel that? <laughs> and so we get, you know, under that spell. But then if we, if mindfulness in a way steps back and it looks at it and it looks like if I act out of that spell, being spellbound by that, oh, poor me, had to do it all on my own. No one's really met me. Nobody knows me, Right? If I start acting and speaking from that place, what sort of world for me and for others gets set in motion? Do I want to inhabit that world? Well, what... what? I, I mean, this is the real fruit of developing mindfulness over time. This is not like immediate. But over time, we say something like, there's just more space in the mind. There's just more space in the heart. So when these... It doesn't mean that our, you know, personality patterns have disappeared because we practiced a lot. It just means when they get triggered and my defensiveness arises or my oh, poor me or nobody's ever been there for me, when those patterns get triggered, they arise with a, with a lot of space around them. And in that space, wisdom, awareness sees, oh, yeah, that's a pattern. It's like this. It feels like this. So it's not confused because the space that develops with practice allows the mind to discern, oh yeah, I don't want to feed that one. I don't want to grow that pattern. I don't want to act that out by letting words 
come out of that. And that's a, that's a real moral superpower, to be able to do that pause, right? To be interested, and it doesn't take a lot of time. It's not like these awkward pauses where someone, you know, you're in the heat of the moment interacting with people, and all of a sudden, you know, you're like frozen in space. It's so, the mind is very quick. And that discerning process to sort of like, ooh, I'm not sure, so I'm going to keep feeling this. You know, and the mind knows how to deflect or create space or, you know, hold the space and sense like, okay, don't go down that pathway. Because when you do, this is what that feels like. But this is what that, you know, the imagination, this is what that seems like. Do you want that? No. So that wholesome restraint, that ability to pause, it's a fierce compassion. Like I care about my well-being and I care about everybody else's well-being. So I'm not going to act that out. Now that isn't the end of morality. That's just the beginning. But it's an essential beginning to becoming a moral human being that really respects life and and reveres non-harming. Not, there is, I mean, does anybody dispute this? There's enough suffering already in life. So why would any of us want to create unnecessary suffering for ourselves or others? Does anybody feel like the world needs more suffering? Now, we may have to do things. We probably, all of us, will have to do things that hurt other people and other beings. But we don't need to intentionally justify harming other beings. And sometimes causing someone to hurt may be in the direction of a deeper healing. right? So we shouldn't presume it's all going to be roses. But the intention isn't to cause harm the intention is to use words that heal, even if they're really painful. And the Buddha talks about this directly. You know, he spells it all out. I'll just read some of his words about wise speech. And what is wise speech? Abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, right? In speech with the intention to divide from abusive speech, from idle chatter. This is called right speech. And then another discourse. Practitioners, a statement endowed with the five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by by knowledgeable people. Which five? So when we speak at the right time, what we speak is truthful, Spoken with affection. It is spoken beneficially, right? The intention to benefit oneself and others. It's spoken with a mind of goodwill. And here's an interesting one. For the person who transgresses in one thing, I tell you, there is no unskillful deed that is not to be done. Rich one thing, telling a deliberate lie. The person who lies, who 
transgresses in this one thing, transcending concern for what is being set in motion, right? This is karma in the Buddha sense. There is no unskillful action they might not do. So basically that last one is, if I can justify lying intentionally, I can pretty much rationalize or justify any terrible deed. And we kind of see this culturally in the States at least, and maybe more globally, you know, where politicians and other corporate leaders and people with power realize that, I mean, this is not new, of course, but to that, you know, blatantly lying and keep lying is sort of, uh, you kind of wear down the ability for people to be shocked. And uh, it really changes things. And, you know, when other people are exaggerating or lying or speaking half-truths, you know, leaving some things out, you notice how we feel like, well, I'm going to shade the truth. It sort of encourages this dissension into, like, dog-eat-dog, get what you can. I don't know if that's fair to dogs, but, but this sort of more base animal nature where we're just in it ourselves because it doesn't make sense to be altruistic when we think nobody else is being altruistic but it's very easy to be altruistic when all around us we see people being generous and kind and compassionate right it just becomes second nature to fall in line with that but when we're around a lot of greedy, aggressive, obnoxious people. It's like, I mean, uh, there are examples. Uh, when Fricky, the co-founder of Common Ground, and my spouse, they went to, the, uh, brought their dance company to Moscow or to someplace in Russia, but they flew into Moscow. And evidently there's no, when they were there, this is a while back, 15 years ago or so, there was no order to like lining up for passport, you know, the entry place where you show your passport. And it was just like you had to fight for your place in line because if you didn't, people just kept going in front of you. And it it's sort of like what that brings out of us. And I noticed that uh, just even recently at the Minneapolis airport, you know, I was in line and somebody cut in front of, not me, but a couple people in front of me. And uh, I just saw this sort of fierceness, you know, and I, I justified it as, like, I'm just taking care of order here. But, <laughs> but, but I was angry, you know, and I immediately, you know, got a T- TSA official and said, hey, this person just <laughs> walked in line there. <laughs> you know, but just that sort of power, like, you know, and so just to have some respect about the the rules like around speaking the truth, the etiquette around speaking the truth, about taking turns, about just like what we say, This it seems sort of silly what we say to a cashier, how are you doing? You know, and they say, have a good day. But these social niceties that we have 
it's sort of a protection. In a way, they're, they're little monuments to this cultural agreement that, hey, you know what? It's better to be kind than to be mean. We all do better when there's that basic kindness. And so, now I'm not saying we have a lot of that, but I'm just saying for from what it can be when that order breaks down and it's just sort of uh, the arena of power, and if you have power, you use it, right? To this sort of um, giving some uh, weight to like, we're all better if we take care of each other. The, the some semblance of the golden rule. Like, how would you like to be treated? I mean, there's whole philosophy uh, based on, you know, if we were going to create society and we didn't know what our location was going to be, what sort of society would we create? Right? So that's that's that thing. So... That's that idea, and it's so interesting where we can fall back like it's either your well-being that I'm going to take care of or my well-being. This comes up a lot. You'll hear it in questions um, at the end of programs often where people realize because they're, they're cultivating mindfulness that they're not really taking care of themselves. They have this conditioned habit to show off and try to take care of others, but they neglect themselves. And so part of what we want to discover is my well-being may not be different. Taking care of my well-being and taking care of everybody else's well-being, that might actually be able to work together. It may not be a choice, like either I'm taking care of myself or I'm taking care of others. So think about that in terms of speech. Speech that is... Um, helpful for oneself and others, that's healing for oneself and others, that's contributing to my well-being and the well-being of others. What can I say that's contributing to our collective well-being? And if there's nothing to say, then we have that pause, that capacity to refrain from speaking until we say something as a... (laughs) great line from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses. Better than a thousand sentences is one sensible phrase on hearing which one becomes peaceful. And so that's something you can you know, take into this work. We'll come back to why speech for a couple weeks. But just have that in the heart like when you're going to have dinner with someone you're, tonight, you're going to go home, some of you live with other people, and you'll probably be interacting. So what way, not even just with words, but even with body language and physical affection and even physical proximity, what way of being with my body language and with my words actually creates a world that will be better for all of us, sets in motion a little community here at home that will be better for everybody concerned. Words that are healing. So you can, on the one hand, we think about what we want to refrain from, but you can just put it into the opposite, into the positive. 
So instead of words that cause division, words that are healing. Instead of words that are harsh and abrasive, words that are soothing and kind of calming for oneself and others. Instead of words that are lies, just words that revere truth. One of the most impactful statements I've read, this is from Reb Anderson. He's a, a Zen teacher in the West Coast. A while back, he was the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, one of the early uh, Dharma centers here in the States. And this is a book of his called Being Upright. And it's all about sila, about morality. And this is a chapter on wise speech. And this section of the chapter is called The Ultimate Meaning of No False Speech. So he's talking about truthfulness. He writes, When you're sailing in a boat, you can see the circle of water around you, but not the whole ocean. If you, if, if you think the circle of water is the ocean, then you are incorrect. Likewise, if you wholeheartedly attempt to tell the truth without being aware of the limitations of your vision, then your words will be a further en- enactment of your ignorance. If you are aware of your limited vision, which is a step toward telling the truth, then you will s- then you will be somewhat anxious about whether you are telling the whole truth. Feeling such anxiety, you may hold more tightly to your limited view as, as the truth. And so, to assuage the anxiety, try to prove that it is true. On the other hand, if you attempt to speak the truth, if your attempt to speak the truth is grounded in the recognition of your own limits of vision, then the truth will be realized and you will be freed from your anxiety. So basically, he's talking about humility here. Like when we speak, to speak the truth, there needs to be an element of humility. And that's, I think, for me, a very powerful idea. It doesn't mean we can't have an opinion, but an opinion without humility, a point of view without humility, isn't the truth. Because, you know, my opinion, my point of view is really something that's arising right now. And who knows, with new information, my point of view may be different in the next moment. So the humility is knowing that this is how it seems to me right now, given my particular perspective, the particular information that this opinion, this point of view is coming out of. And he writes a little bit more, The truth is not realized just by me saying what I think is true is the truth. Truth arises when my truth is offered but not placed above the truth of others. The whole truth is realized in the marriage of the minds of all beings. And then a little later in that paragraph, the truth is not held on my side or on your side. I endanger my truth to the others in the faith that I will thus be liberated from my own small truth and realize the oceanic truth. I can never see beyond my own circle of water and yet being aware that my circle is just a circle and not the ocean, I'm liberated from it. I really love that. And it really allows this 
um, you know, us to go forward in the world knowing that we don't know the whole picture. This is uh, the Buddha's talking about some similar territory. And he's just giving criteria for how you decide what's worth saying. In the case of words that a wise one knows, knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, unendearing, and disagreeable to others, one does not say them. So that makes sense, right? In the case of words that a wise person knows to be true, but unbeneficial, unendearing, disagreeable to others, one does not say them. Because right? we can use truth that's not going to benefit anybody as a way of putting down someone, putting them in their place. You idiot. Don't you realize? Right. So that isn't beneficial. And then the third case. In the case of words that a wise person knows to be factual, true, beneficial, but unendearing and disagreeable to others, what do you think he's going to say? One has a sense of the proper time for saying them, right? So it's true. You think it will be helpful, helpful or healing for all concerned, but they're not going to like hearing it. So then you look for the right time and place, and, the, and maybe even the right way to say it. And then the fourth case, in the case of words that a wise person knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, one does not say them, right? And the fifth, in the case of words that the wise person knows to be factual, true, but unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, one does not say them. And then the last one, in the case of words that one knows, the wise one knows to be factual, true, beneficial, endearing and agreeable to others, one has a sense of the proper time for saying them. Why is that? Because the wise person has sympathy for all living beings. Right? And that's the thing about speech, you know, to think of it, feel it really as a gift. It really is an act, I mean, not usually, but it could be a real act of generosity. How can we speak in a way that's an improvement on silence? To really think of that, you know, as a being, we're a social being, uh, often, most often a community-based being. We live in community with others, right? So we want to contribute. So how do we speak in ways that's a contribution? And that's really, it changes our perspective. Because if you hold that as a guideline, then you'll notice how much of our speech is not about contributing to mine and other well-being. You know, there's, it's a business relationship. We're trying to, there's something strategic. It's not a real gift all around. And then that creates a little tension that can create, allow for some creativity, like how might I take care of this business in a way that's actually a contribution all around. Healing, illuminates, supporting. That's just, does that seem too far of a stretch? So I'll turn it over now to the rest of you. I'll just la end with this last line, which I love from Thich Nhat Hanh, because it really is so inspiring. It inspires us to do this work. 
If you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. Right? So this world of speaking, this world of interacting with language, it's impactful. And we're either going to create hell for each other, for all of us rather, or we can create something more healing and beautiful together. And it really, you know, as social beings, it's as much the words we're speaking and hearing as it is our actions. And of course, the two are intertwined. But it'd be nice to hear because collectively we've made a lot of mistakes with our words and hopefully have learned a few things from all those mistakes. And it'd be nice for folks to share it with the group. Laurel, you want to start off? Hi, my name's Mary Laurel. And um, I had a uh, powerful thing happen to me today. I was at the Y and I've um, been thinking a lot about what you're t- we're talking about, the speech. And I, I also am seeing immediate results every time. I mean, faster and faster and yeah, that's more lessons. That's a sign of the developing of practice. We say, kind of jokingly, karma arises immediately. The fruit of our actions and our words show up. Sorry to interrupt. So there was a gentleman sitting after I was done um, in that lobby area, and he had this really annoying video game going r- Really, it was really loud. I mean, it was making these really crazy sounds. And I did pause for a minute, but I thought, I don't know. I don't like it, and I don't know if other people are going to say some something, you know. So I thought, how can I do this? And I, I thought, maybe I shouldn't say anything, and maybe I shouldn't have. But I said, oh, that's kind of that's loud. And I didn't say it too judgmental, but I said, oh, that's kind of a loud game. And he said... And I was trying to say it kindly, and he said, yeah, I'm going to turn that down now. And I said, well, what is that? And I thought, well, you know what, let me be a little curious, because that I didn't want to just put slap. You know, I said, well, what is that? I'm kind of interested in that. And he said, let me put my leg on and come over and show you. And he, he lifted up his pant leg, and he had no leg there. And he was going to put his leg on. And I said, wow. You know, like right then I thought, wow, the kindness of someone... I don't, to, to say, you know, I really want to show you this. I'll, let me put my, and he was a distance away. So I said, I'm, I'd like to see that. Can I come over there? And so then I went, and so this whole exchange came. It was so incredible in that moment for here's this judgmental me going, you know, I don't want to hear that. I'm just going to do my thing and say that. And then the kindness that I felt really was powerful. So, yeah. And but, you, but it sounded like there was that, there was some pause, right? Because yeah. you probably could have blurted something, like you said, right. something a little bit more aggressive. So we're not always going to get it perfectly right. Yeah. But, but And I said, thank you. Well, you know, that maybe that wasn't so truthful. I was really interested in that game. But I did say, thank you. I, I really did appreciate you showing me that, you know. And, it was, and I said, now, what's the name of that? Because I thought maybe someday I, I might take a look at it. Yeah. But... Um, but, but there's a lot of these social niceties that are basically ways of saying, um, I can't help myself but wanting to say something about the noise, but I also want you to know that you're a human being and I care about you. And if that means asking about the game, I mean, that's the way that can get transmitted. So we want to be, the, the ultimate uh, barometer is, what was left over in Mary Laurel's heart from that interaction. Not what you said, but what 
you know, when you're really grounded and sensitive, what is left over? Because no one can tell you what you did was skillful or unskillful, but you can know because you can feel what's left over and sense maybe what got set emotion in around you too. Yeah, thanks. That's a beautiful thing, story to hear. Yeah, who would like to go next? My name is Doug, and um, I had an experience um, with words or not words on Saturday. And, and when you had mentioned earlier about the uh, person, uh, Mark, that had uh, kind of budged in line at the airport. So I was getting ready to go into work for my business, and I decided to stop at Aldi. And it's not Saturday, and it's about noon, quarter two, so you can imagine the chaos that's going on there. And how stressful it is just to get through that line, you know, because they just rush, rush, rush you. So I had about six things, and I'm standing in line, and it's a big line, and I'm getting all worked up because, you know, here I'm standing there, and I'm having to wait. And I'm like, you know, they should open another line. They should open another line. There was two. So if any of you have been in a situation, you kind of look around for because you know they're going to be getting in there looking around and the cashiers are looking frantic and they're uh, going to open another line. So, you know, you got to rush there real quick. So I should have been the next one. So I seen it coming and sure enough, everybody just bolts over to the next line. And I'm thinking, wow, that's really rude. You know, how about just saying, you know, you know, cause you do see it happen. People say, do you want to go, you know, or if you have three items, you want to go in front there. So I'm like, okay, I'll just stay put. So I just stayed put and was calm. I'm like, no, oh, they can rush over there. I'll just, I, I won't be too delayed, maybe a couple minutes. So I get all the way through the line and I'm paying. And there's a woman in front of me. She checked out. And um, I have my back. And as you know, you go, you know, and then there's a long counter there and people put their stuff. And there's nothing for sale on that side between the cashier and, and the uh, the wall there. And the woman that was in front of me comes back with one item. I don't know where she got it, but... She wanted to come back in the line, and as soon as I checked out, I wanted to pay for it. And the cashier's like, and, uh, yeah, ma'am, you have to wait in line. And she was insistent. She goes, no, no, I just got one thing. Now, I didn't want, and I'm, and she's told her like once or twice, and I'm thinking the whole time, I'm going to say something, I'm going to say something, because this is getting agitated. Now, I didn't say anything, because one thing I'm thinking well, this would come across as racist because, you know, she's not Caucasian. So she had went up to the people that was next in line with me that spoke her language and was having a conversation in a foreign language, trying to convince them to let her go and butt in line. And uh, they looked really uncomfortable. And the, 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 I saw under my breath, that I, without saying anything, I just kind of said, because I had my back to the cashier, I said, don't do it. And <laughs> I said, don't do it, real quiet. And uh, she said again and again, and then I said, don't do it. <laughs> and so finally she said, ma'am, you got to either put it back or go to the back of the line. And then she actually went to the back of the line. And uh, as I was getting ready to leave, the cashier said, thanks for backing me up. And I said, okay. So I don't know. It was just, it, um, it uh, I think it was a better situation not to say something, but, you know, uh, it was a, interesting experience just to get through that line that day. Yeah, and and what's really powerful in those kind of complex situations that can give it's it, it can be a real uh, teaching for us to remember which is our first responsibility 
it's for the quality of our mind. Because we can't really trust the impulse to act or speak if the mind is disturbed. So if we're feeling agitated, right, or self-righteous or whatever charged, then we have to be, it's not about getting rid of the charge, it's about being intimate with it, like being interested in, okay, this is what's arising. Can I be with that? So that's a really good, um, like, instead of telling myself, don't say anything, it's like, okay, if you need to say something, fine, but first, your first responsibility is to get, you know, we say words like be grounded, be centered, but it really means not being afraid of anything that's been triggered, that's coming up, including all the things we shouldn't say or we're afraid of saying. We need to be really relaxed because otherwise we do tend to leak. We do, do tend, like, we're trying not to say the wrong thing, but repression isn't a very effective mechanism for keeping us from acting out unskillfully. The really useful mechanism is to see that tendency that we don't trust, to see it for what it is, and to really feel it, like to feel into it. Oh, I'm angry. Or, oh, I think this about that person. Because of their you know, particular characteristic, these biases come up in me. That's what's going on right now in this heart, this mind. And really kind of owning it, sort of settling in it, and normalizing it. Yeah, with a mind that's been conditioned this way, this is what I think and feel in this kind of situation. Can it be okay? Can I relax with the heat? Can I relax with the reactivity? Because that's not acting it out. But what that does is it creates the space for more creative possibilities to come. And I find that sometimes in those complex situations like you described, Doug, that a lot of the time, I don't get to the place where I trust any sort of response. I mean, as long as not responding is an option, I keep doing my work until I'm ready to respond. And a lot of time, I'm not ready to respond before something else sort of uh, takes care of the situation. But I think that's good. It's like we're really putting the responsibility on, is this the kind of mind or heart that I trust to respond. And if I don't, like if there's anger there or if there's greed there, well then I don't want to reinforce. I know what that sets in motion. And I've tried so many times to say something skillfully from a place of anger. I can tell you it doesn't work. <laughs> Anyone want to back me up on that? <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing saying something from a place of greed. Are you going to eat that? <laughs> 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 or, you know, all these, these ways where we think, you know, it's like the way our mind conceives it, but greed colors the mind, just like anger colors the mind. So the words, they might make sense to say, but they're tainted. The greed is tainting the wisdom that's saying that's a skillful thing to say. So it's really... Like, I don't trust the mind and the heart when it's greedy or angry. Or, yeah, greedy or angry. So it's like that's my fierce way of showing up is like, I can't say anything right now because I don't trust my mind. 
Yeah, do you want to go next? My name is Cole. Uh, I'm a middle school teacher. So some of the conversations about speech and intentionality uh, in, in relation to speech and your relationships with different people around you is really interesting in the realm of adolescence. Yeah. And there's, there's many mornings where, uh, you know, students aren't always aware of some of the niceties and some of the purpose of small talk or just, how are you? Hello. Nice shoes. It's sunny today. This is nice. Um, sometimes kind of mind-boggling because students will just do the opposite or they will kind of go seemingly out of their way sometimes to bring each other down or just kind of bring whatever is with them that day into the class. Uh, and on Fridays, I try to do meditation with them, just like five-minute meditation. And uh, often it is difficult to start. It's like a five-minute thing. We have a, a voice uh, recording to go along with it. Um, and what I've found to be really successful, it's been really interesting, is when I try to convince students themselves to try meditation, like just kind of put your head down if you'd like to and listen to this or doodle if you need to, I get a certain amount of response and reception. But when I say, this might be the only five minutes that your classmate has of like peace and quiet, so can you please give this to them, like give them that opportunity, they really respond to it. Because a lot of them just want to feel like they're receiving that from someone else, so they'd like to give that, even though they don't might they might not make that connection yet personally. Yeah, like I can do this for myself. Um, but it's it's really beautiful to see because after about a minute and a half, the kind of collective shuffling will slow down, and you at least get a couple minutes of peace and quiet. Uh, and it's kind of like an indirect way for them to like be intentional about their relationship with each other. It's really fun to see. Yeah, and it's that power of generosity. That must be what you're tapping into, like like you said, giving, offering that to each other. Yeah, that's a great story. I'm Jenny. I just wanted to uh, make a quick comment about your airport experience. I moved to Minnesota from Massachusetts about 30 years ago, and when I came here, I had such... I was blown away by how slowly people get into line. And I don't think I ever would have butt in to a line, but culturally I think it's really important when I'm thinking about stuff to understand that there's these aspects to what people are doing that might be completely unfamiliar to me and um, just to have patience around that. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, everyone. So we'll pick it up in a... Uh, next Sunday night uh, with Why Speech. So pay attention, bring your stories and learnings next week. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time for one or two breaths and let go of the words. And thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.